The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Hello and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. I'll be your guest host today. And my name is Layla Zayden, also with Generation Progress. Maggie and I are taking over the Leslie Marshall Show once again for the Millennial Power Hour Takeover. And this time it's a Millennial Lady Takeover. And we have a studio full of ladies here to rage. Woo! So that's that's the plan for this hour. So we're very excited to... Uh, have you all on the show. And if you have any questions uh, during the show while we're talking about these issues, you can always call 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And I just want to introduce our first guest, who is a great friend of mine and a fantastic researcher who has a great new paper out this week, Antoinette Flores. She's a policy analyst on the post-secondary education team here at the Center for American Progress. And she's got a lot to say about the college wage gap and how us ladies, we're going to college, we're working hard, and we are not getting the money. So welcome, Antoinette, to the show. Hi. Hi, Layla and Maggie. Thanks so much for having me. And we also have joining us Anna Chu, who formerly of CAP, unfortunately, we lost you to the National Women's Law Center, what a get for them, where you are the Vice President for Income Security and Education. And uh, you have a lot to share with us, too, about the recent census numbers. So we're really excited to uh, have you on the show. So welcome, Anna. Thank you. It's so good to be back here in the old days with everyone. So, you know, I think there's been a lot of conversation in the past few days, and, and both of you have kind of contributed contributed to this national conversation <clears throat> about what the heck is happening. The wage gap persists, and Antoinette, you have a paper that just came out that said even for ladies who go get their college degree, who are graduating from some of these really prestigious schools, the, the wage gap is still there 10 years later. So tell us a little bit about that report. Sure. So I looked at average earnings for students that enrolled in public and private four-year colleges. Um, and what you see is that women, after 10 years after enrolling, their average earnings are still lower than men's after only six years. And the gap there is about $4,000. But the even more surprising part is when you look at some of these elite colleges, um, our top 10 include MIT, Stanford, Harvard, Middlebury. On average, men are earning $26,000 more per year than women. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's and terrible. so and so we see this wage gap at six years. There's a wage gap. It grows at ten years, and even for, among women at these very elite colleges, uh, they experience a wage gap. It's pretty large, and this is occurring even though women that enroll in college have much higher graduation higher graduation rates than men. 
I think one of the things that was so stunning to me about this is the top 10 schools where the wage gap is biggest. I mean, these are fancy places. And I think for me, I think, okay, you got into Harvard, Yale, Princeton, you're fancy, good for you, you are set for life. But I mean, if you could talk a little bit, Antoinette, what is, what's driving this? You know, I feel like if I was, if I'm a girl that gets into Yale, I'm like, all right, I'm set. I'm good. I don't want to have to worry about having this gap with my male counterparts at the end. And like, it makes me a little mad thinking that these highly accomplished young women are facing this. Are there factors that we should be looking at that makes this gap persist? Yeah, absolutely. Before I go on that, I would, I I would just want to note that, uh, Going to college still has a very high return for for women overall. And for the ladies that attend these schools, they are among the highest earning of among all women. And so they are seeing a high return and they do have among the highest wages of all women. But when you look at their earnings compared to men, there's this huge gap. And there are a number of reasons why this might be. One of them is that men and women are choosing very different majors and um, making very different career choices when they leave college. Another um, another potential impact here is that um, men might be choosing to go to graduate school in different fields. And in many cases, in these high-earning STEM fields, business fields, finance fields, you see men. Um, men tend to dominate these fields. And when you look at who goes to graduate school, women tend to enroll in programs with lower earnings, so social work, education, those kinds of things. Yeah. And Anna, you know, tell us a little bit about kind of your perspective on the impacts of the gender wage gap and kind of how we're seeing other problems kind of spiral out from, so now, you know, we've identified that Mm -hmm. there's a wage gap and what what are the impacts specifically on young women, young women Mm -hmm. of color, you know, how is that factoring into their economic realities Mm -hmm. and what are some of the things we can do to to kind of counteract that? Um, I also, I absolutely want to address your question. question. I think there's a lot of issues for us to deal with. You know, just to piggyback off what Antoinette said, too, um, there have been a lot of studies about the wage gap. And even when you take, and there have definitely been researchers and economists who have looked at it, and taking aside even um, the factors implicating, like, which careers and which specific jobs women uh, uh, choose versus men, um, you still see a certain percentage of the wage gap that cannot be explained by career choice, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so there are still un- mm-hmm. unexplained things happening. that uh, So we cannot, you know, fully blame women for choosing social sciences, say, instead right. of a STEM career. And we looked at, you know, the wage gap at the National Women's Law Center, too. When you look at women who, and men who have um, obtained professional degrees, right, um, you st- even at that level, you still see a significant wage gap. So, you know, for women who have a professional degree in 2015, you're seeing earnings of about 82000 But for men with a professional degree, that's 131000 what? So that exactly. <laughs> so, so you could have let's say, professional degrees. So we're saying doctors and lawyers. You know, right. so we're saying like this. You are seeing this problem. You know, at all levels, you're seeing them right out of college. You know, for folks just out of high school, but even you know at the very high end for professional. You know, uh, attorneys and doctors, dentists. You name it. it, it it's there. 
And, you know, to your question, you know, what are we seeing? I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, yesterday's data showed, you know, a lot of good news. I, I don't want to say it, it, there was no good news because the median wages, you know, went up for the first time. Right. Very exciting. Uh, exactly. You know, well, not for the first time, but went up significantly and mm-hmm. at the fastest increase Um I think ever recorded, um, and the poverty levels also dropped. But when you look closer, you look at what's happening to women, and you look at what's happening, especially to millennial women. The picture isn't as rosy, and it's a little bit scarier. You know, women are still thirty-five percent have a thirty-five percent higher chance of being in poverty than men. Mm. And millennial women actually have the highest what I call poverty gap, meaning that for each age group, millennial women are just much more likely than their male counterparts of the same age to be in poverty. And so Mm. it's I think it's fantastic that the uh, economy is finally on the men's, that more Americans are finally getting a toehold. But clearly women's lives, you know, um, are Mm -hmm. not in the same place. Mm -hmm. And there are still structural issues wrong with our overall economy that need to be addressed, you know, to make sure that we improve the livelihood for women. Absolutely. And so, you know, what are we doing? Like, what are the things that we can address? You know, I'd be interested in what both of you think. How can we start to close this this wage gap and hopefully see some uh, benefits in other parts of, of women's lives? Sure. I think there are a number of of really important policies, especially that are in the larger national conversation right now. Um, For women, we're talking about paid leave policies, uh, access to affordable childcare. We're talking equal pay policies. And I think I will let Anna talk more about some of those, but, but because I'm talking about specifically about college students, you know, there are things that colleges can do. It's it's almost shocking to see how different these these earnings are, but not all colleges have these kinds of gaps. And I think it's on them to look at what their students are majoring in and what ac- uh, what kind of access they have to educational opportunities. Great, and we're so excited. We're gonna take a quick break now, but please call on with our, your questions because we wanna know how to solve this problem. 8886-LESLIE, and we'll talk to you all in a second. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Give her a call now at 8886-LESLIE. free podcast of Leslie? It's as easy as going to www.lesliemarshallshow.com. Oh, we only have another wow. nine minutes. Oh, it's, this is, okay, so that's 3.30. Okay, yeah, right. perfect. But, I was like, just like, Hello, you are listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Layla, and I'm joined by Maggie Thompson of Generation Progress. We are doing a millennial lady uh, takeover, power hour, and we were just talking about the gender wage gap. And so 
And I want to go back to you and uh, kind of open it up in terms of solutions that you see. But we were talking over the break, and I think there was a really interesting stat that you gave about uh, women PhD holders versus uh, men bachelor degree holders and kind of what what are those numbers and why are they so similar? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I don't think I have all the answers to why they're so similar, you know, but one of the jarring things is when you look at um, – when people catch up and how much education people need or women and men need to have in order to be somewhat level, it's it's surprising. You know, for men with a bachelor's degree, they are seeing about maybe $71,000 in earnings. Um, and it's only when you reach the doctorate level that women are playing catch up. You know, women, uh, women PhDs make um, just a little bit more at 82000 wow. And so how much more... You know, how much more do we have to do to be in the same place? Right. And PhD takes forever. And it's really <laughs> expensive. <laughs> it's just like... Yeah, absolutely. You've probably taken out a ton of student debt by the point of completion of a doctorate program. Mm-hmm. And so how does that factor into a woman's poverty? And how are we making sure that, you know, that's that's not a position that we're putting, putting young people in? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we are really talking about a bigger picture of like what's happening to a broad swath of women mm-hmm. and the different uh, the different trials and the different issues and the different you know dilemmas facing women so you know some people say uh, with the wage gap it's really because women you know are picking different careers and so in terms of a policy solution well can we ensure you know that women are getting the same access to stem programs so that you know that, that uh, for instance my little girl like my little daughter can grow up and get the stem program get the math classes and science classes you know so that she She's thinking about, you know, being a doctor or in my dream of dreams, an astronomer. (laughs) (laughs) Or astronomer is number one from stars. Actually, uh, I I would like her to be an astronaut, but my husband doesn't really like that. That's excellent. Yeah, I'm on board. I'm on board. You know, but in thinking about the solutions, you know, we should think about what are the issues facing women and meeting women in the reality of their own lives, right? So I talked a lot about how millennial women have the highest poverty gap, you know, are, you know, at are much more likely than their male counterparts of the same age to be in poverty. And when you look at women of color, those numbers are even mm-hmm. more dramatic and scary. And so it's um, when they're, you know, if they're coming out of college, uh, if they are usually have higher rates of student debt. So what can we do? What policies can we do? And Antoinette will know better, you know, to manage and help them with their student debt. You know, when we're talking about 18 to 34. The reality is those are prime childbearing years. Right. And so how do we make sure that those issues of having a family, going on leave, taking care of the child is just not – relegated to the women's sphere. It is the women's problem. It's our responsibility to mm-hmm. figure it out and try to make things work. But instead... Right, because like, women make babies all on their own with no, no input help. from men. No, <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> it's our problem. <laughs> exactly. Like, we are the only ones like uh, that have to care for everything. Right. right. So can we have access to high-quality, affordable child care? And, like, is that just the responsibility of the mother to think about? Can we have paid leave? Because, 
what do you do afterwards in those three months? You know, if you're a low a mom working a low wage job, you don't have extra money lying around, and so the choice is. Somehow leave your baby with someone and hope they figure it out, and then you go back to work, or else not work and see no income. Yeah, and childcare is so expensive. That's one of the things that we work on here, and it just you know I I have family members who they when they had kids they had a job that they didn't want to leave, but childcare was so expensive it just canceled out their wage, so it was not worth it for them to stay in the workforce. And I feel like yeah. we're losing droves of women to that problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You, you know. When you look at how expensive childcare has gotten in the United States, and I'm talking about college, I'm talking about college tuition, but childcare is a completely different story. And and I think it's to have two children in a high quality uh, childcare program that costs more than college tuition in a majority of places. Mm. And so when you're talking about women, young women, millennial women. Um, that is a huge burden. And as far as, as far as paid leave goes, about 13% of, of workers have access to paid leave, uh, when through their employer, uh, to paid family leave. So for women that want to leave the workforce or that need to, um, take time off to, you know, have a baby, like it's, it's no big thing. They don't have access to, to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, mm-hmm. and so, uh, paid leave, affordable childcare, these are really important issues. Yeah. And I think what's so frustrating about this, and this is why this is the ladies rage hour <laughs> is that internet, your college wage gap paper was really focused on the revenue side of this. So this is sort of, we're already starting out from behind on that side of our balance sheet. We already have less money coming in from the beginning because of these structural reasons. But then we also have more student debt. We yes. disproportionately bear the burden mm-hmm. of childcare expenses, which are incredibly expensive. So I just think when we talk about this idea of a squeeze on the middle class or, you know, we're really feeling this from both ends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I wonder, is there is there a particular benefit to kind of communities of color? And I guess 30 seconds wrap up from each of you kind of last thoughts on, who, like, are we on the way up? Are we kind of trending upwards in solutions? And what does the future look like? Uh, new out this week, the uh, pay gap has gone from 79 cents to every 79 cents per women from every uh, to 80 cents to every okay. ma- man's dollar earned. <laughs> Don't spend that up. penny all in the same place. <laughs> uh, any last thoughts from you, Anna? Um, I, I think there's been so much more national discourse about paid leave, about the importance of childcare, and I think that's the positive, that we're seeing more conversations like this. Great. Thank you so much. This is the Leslie Marshall Show, Millennial Lady Takeover. We'll be back. Leslie Marshall, no spin doctors here. Just the truth. Hello, you are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Layla Zayden with Generation Progress. And I'm Maggie Townsend with Generation Progress. And you are listening to our Millennial Lady Power or Millennial Power Hour Takeover. All ladies, all the time. We're raging about lady injustices. (laughs) So if you're just joining us, we had a really good conversation about 
uh, the gender pay gap and what's going on there. Now we're shifting gears a little bit to talk about uh, an issue that really impacts everyone but has a lot of implications uh, on young people especially. And uh, that is the Supreme Court and specifically the Supreme Court vacancy. And so we're joined by Abby uh, Barlev-Wiley, our policy analyst with Legal Progress here at the Center for American Progress. Welcome, Abby. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. So uh, I guess first things first, Abby, what is happening with this vacancy? Why is there an empty seat for so long? It's been forever. What's happening? It has been almost categorically forever. <laughs> <laughs> February 13th. 2016 feels like it was forever ago. But who's counting? But who's counting? It's only been 183 days since Garland (laughs) was nominated. No big deal. Um, So on February 13th, Justice Scalia died unexpectedly in Texas. She left an opening on the Supreme Court uh, pretty close to the end of President Obama's tenure. That's unusual, but 17 justices have been confirmed during presidential election years, so it's not completely unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Um, On March 16th, President Obama nominated Chief Judge Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. Great guy. The Republicans have praised him in the past during uh, previous nominations to the federal courts, um, but they have vowed to obstruct no matter what, uh, and they have so far lived up to their promise, which really is irresponsible Mm -hmm. and extreme and unprecedented. And so what impact has that had on, I guess, cases from the last session and and looking forward to the next term? Yeah, I mean, it's had a huge impact. Um, You know, I I personally thought that the court was going to try really hard to avoid splitting 4-4 on some of the biggest cases. Mm -hmm. And when the court splits 4-4, that means that the lower court's decision is upheld just by default. So there's no new precedent set. There's no... There's no word from the Supreme Court. It's just as if the court never took the case. And they went 4-4 on some major cases, like, of course, the DAPA-DACA case, which was about President Obama's Mm -hmm. deferred action on immigration, um, which left over 6 million citizens who live with uh, people who would have benefited from those provisions in limbo. Um, And actually, a really interesting criminal uh, justice-ish case that went (laughs) 4-4 So there was this man on death row, um, and the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the Federal Court of Appeals, Mm -hmm. stayed his execution because he has developmental illness, as he doesn't remember his uh, crime and all of that. So the government, the state appealed to the Supreme Court saying, um, we need to execute this man now. So please remove the stay from the lower court. The Supreme Court split. Four, four, in a literal matter of life and death. Uh, And and because the lower court had granted a stay, this man got to live another day. Wow. This is just unbelievable to me because I feel like this is basic government stuff. You know, our founding fathers set up our constitution, our government. Mm -hmm. So there were three branches. And what we've got is one branch just completely monkey-wrenching another branch. Yeah, and let's not forget that this is the same Senate that shut down the government in 2013, (laughs) and now they're trying to shut down the Supreme Court. That's right. And I just, you know, know, we really think this is pretty basic to the point that I have to talk a little bit about how we've tried to educate senators. Abby was involved with us going to the Hill and dropping off copies of Schoolhouse Rock because, again, this is basic stuff. Supreme Court's supposed to have cartoon-level basic. Cartoon-level basic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, I mean, 
Abby, there have been a couple other cases, and it's really coming to a head now that we're getting closer to November, and there are impacts for people's voting rights, our criminal justice system. Like, what are some of the other cases that have popped up that um, where it's having these immediate impacts um, as we're thinking about this fall? Yeah, so talking about, thinking about this fall, immediate impacts, voting rights definitely comes to mind. Um, you know, there have been a slew this summer of federal courts that have shut down uh, voter ID laws, these voter suppression laws in Texas, uh, Wisconsin, and North Carolina, and uh, which, is, which is great news for democracy. Um, and Abby, just for, for some of our listeners, what are voter ID laws? So voter ID laws require, to varying degrees in various forms, require voters to have a state-issued identification, uh, with a, usually with a photo, uh, to present at... Uh, the, at the ballots to show that they are who they say they are. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people say, like, oh, well, this sounds pretty basic. And I was listening to the radio this morning, and someone was saying, well, you know, you use a photo ID to buy alcohol, to buy tobacco, so why not use one to vote? Well, of course, the difference is, <laughs> you know, tobacco and alcohol is harmful and dangerous to your health. Voting is the fundamental core principle that backs up the ability for us to have a democracy. Voting is good for you. <laughs> it's good different. for you. That's a much more brief, that's a much briefer way to say it. Yeah. Voting is good for I you. I bet you the Surgeon General approves of <laughs> yes. voting. Yes. That's, yeah. No warning labels anyway. Yeah. Um, and, so, and, and so it has the effect of suppressing the vote for many people, particularly people who um, are impoverished, for people who might have to travel um, in the North Carolina decision. The judge recognized that uh, people would have to travel, in some instances, hundreds of miles mm. in order to get the kind of ID they would need. So this wow. is, this isn't this isn't just going around the corner um, to get an ID. This is this is really serious stuff for a lot of people. And um, so so the North Carolina, uh, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Federal Appeals Court over North Carolina said that the North Carolina law targeted African-Americans in particular with almost um, surgical precision wow. was, was the term. So then North Carolina appealed to the Supreme Court and said, there's going to be too much confusion on Election Day. You've got to let this law go forward. So they asked the Supreme Court to overrule the lower court's decision and reinstate the law. The Supreme Court, this was just a couple weeks ago, split for no. four. Right. So, and that's good news for us for now because it means that the law remains ineffective and people will be able to vote with, you know, without having the burden of the voter ID law. Um, but again, especially as we get closer to November, this emphasizes how yeah. important the Supreme Court really is to the direction of our country mm-hmm. and, and our democracy I think and our democracy this what, what you referenced just this confusion you know voting already figuring out your voting place your registration place for a lot of people is confusing enough so yeah. then you add this layer of dysfunction on where our government can't because of their dysfunction fill the supreme court so these issues can be decided right and i think this is such an opportunity for the supreme court as it's done in the past to weigh in on a real injustice i think mm-hmm. in some of these states, i think in it might have been alabama they were passing these laws that said that you had to go and get a license at the DMV and then they shut down the DMVs in counties that had majority black people. I mean, these are, you know, this is like a civil rights issue of our era and we need a Supreme Court that's going to do what it is in the past. This is sort of a Brown v. Education moment for voting, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. And I think in, in a time where it is, it feels really hard to get out and vote, especially if you're a young person, you know, growing up in a fairly like digital world where you have really easy interactions with most of the, the organizations, businesses, people on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. voting feels really hard. And so we should be making voting easier for people and not yeah. trying to scale back uh, the ways that you can cast your ballot and participate in democracy. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we're in the 21st century now. We seem to be moving forward with everything else except for democracy. <laughs> just that one, just that just one, that one fundamental little okay. tiny. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's fine. Right. So, Abby, you know, you mentioned criminal justice reform cases earlier, and I mm-hmm. think the Supreme Court is such an interesting, uh, you know, the judicial branch is such an interesting branch of our government because it really touches on every single issue mm-hmm. uh, that impacts young people, and criminal justice is one of them. So if you could you just give us a, a quick preview? Has the Supreme Court decided to look at any cases uh, in the next few months that do interact or intersect with kind of criminal justice and criminal justice reform? Yeah, yeah, they have. And, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, here at CAP, we're still, you know, we're still trying to figure out exactly how we talk about the Supreme Court in 2016 because of the vacancy um, and, and because of the Supreme Court vacancy, or at least in part because of the Supreme Court vacancy, the court hasn't taken the sort of major blockbuster cases that we're, that we're used to seeing. There's usually at least, you know, one or two big ones, health care, gay marriage. Over the last few years, right. every term has had something that really defines what the court has done that year. We haven't really seen, we've seen some interesting cases that the court will be taking, but nothing really groundbreaking. Um, the court has taken on some really interesting death penalty uh, and mm. and criminal justice cases. Um, so I can, I can talk about, I can talk a little bit about those. Um, so and what's what's particularly interesting? Oh, sure. Oh, sorry. What's particularly interesting to me about um, these cases is that they all involve either race or disability. Um, so there, wow. it's it's not just typical procedural issues. Uh, it's about race, the death penalty, mental disability, and the death penalty, um, and what qualifies as bias that's so strong and prevalent in a case mm-hmm. that uh, it would allow for a new trial, essentially. Wow. Yeah. I think that's definitely something that, that young people care about. And um, I think we definitely want to hear a lot more about those cases and possibly some of the other cases that uh, deal with issues that young people really care about. But we're going to take a quick break. Uh, if anybody has a question, any callers, we are taking calls 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. We'll be right back. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Hello, you are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Layla Zaden with Generation Progress. 
And I'm Maggie Thompson, also with Generation Progress. And we're here in the studio with Abby talking about the Supreme Court vacancy um, and what that really means for young people and uh, people across the country. And I think um, we were talking over the break about some of the work that we've all been doing to get the grassroots involved and kind of calling for a vote, uh, a hearing and a vote. And actually, Generation Progress, a, a few months ago now at this point, uh, Maggie mentioned we went to the halls of Congress and delivered, hand-delivered copies of Schoolhouse Rock to members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, just to remind them how government works, because I think, you know, they, they, they needed a little bit of a reminder. Um, and we had a great Constitution costume with it, too, which I think we should probably right. break out a little bit more That's often. Right. We wish that this was on the radio so you could see it. I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but Abby, you know, I, I guess question to you is who are some of the folks that we really need to make sure that we're talking to in order to move this process forward? You know, if I'm if I'm sitting at home and I don't know much about this issue, who do I need to pick up the phone and call and say, hey, come on, what are you yeah. doing? Who are the bad guys who aren't sure. doing their jobs? Sure. Well, so first of all, I'm glad you mentioned the people sitting at home because we will never get a Supreme Court justice, a non-Supreme Court justice again, if not for the grassroots. So we here in D.C., we can have meetings. We can talk to people. Nobody nobody cares what we think. They know what we think. Right. It's, it's the people at home. It's the power that you have as a constituent to call your senator and say, hey, I live here. You represent me. You work for me. And I care about this. And I need you to do your job under the Constitution and give Judge Garland fair consideration for his nomination. Um, so it really is ultimately a, a citizen's issue. Um, as far as who's really holding it up, well, there's, there are several bad actors, so to speak, such as the entire Republican Senate um, all of them. Uh, but specifically, uh, Senator Grassley from Iowa leads the Senate Judiciary Committee. So the way that it works is that in order for Judge Garland to get a vote on his nomination, he first has to have a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And the Judiciary Committee is comprised of Republicans and Democrats, a majority of Republicans, because the Republicans have the majority in, in the Senate. And this is this is a chance for uh, Judge Garland to talk about his background, for the senators to ask questions, for the people to see who the nominee is. Uh, it it shouldn't be a political act. Uh, and 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 Senator Grassley from Iowa has been holding up the process now for 183 days, even though his constituents have been badgering him at town halls. Um, at home and in D.C., mm -hmm. and it's affected his favorable ratings. His favorables have dropped, and a lot of uh, articles that I've read about the topic have, have have cited specifically the pressure that he's been facing from the grassroots wow. on uh, on the Supreme Court nomination. Wow! So that's that's one bad actor. And I think that one of the things that I just wanted to reiterate, and why this is so frustrating, is that this is such a political sort of foul act of obstruction. I mean, we're talking about United States senators that we elect just blatantly ignoring what the U.S. Constitution tells them they should do. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that I just wanted to mention, just so folks understand how political this is, is another senator who is on the Judiciary Committee, one Orrin Hatch from Utah. So if you're in Utah, call his office. You tell him about this. He had a meeting set up with President Obama's nominee to the Supreme Court, Chief Justice 
Merrick Garland. And two days before that meeting was going to take place, there was an op-ed that appeared in his home state newspaper talking about how he had the meeting with Judge Garland and he was unimpressed. So just two to, days before. Two days before the meeting happened. Oh, so just to be clear, he was literally not even going to give Merrick Garland the time of day by actually meeting with him and giving him a reasonable shot and a fair hearing to the point that he accidentally put the op-ed he had already written about what he thought of his meeting into the paper. So really, like, this is just a political game for these guys. So if you live in Iowa, you call up Chuck Grassley's office. If you live in Utah, you call up uh, Senator Orrin Hatch's office because these guys really need to hear from us. Didn't Orrin Hatch say that Merrick Garland would be a good appointee? Why, yes, he did. In fact, he had said that Obama, that he'd be great on the Supreme Court, but that President Obama would never appoint him. So so there you have it. And and <laughs> our sense of the political nature is, is of this entire process mm-hmm. is something that the American people are recognizing. In fact, a recent poll from the Center for American Progress found that a full 70% of voters nationally believe that Republican leaders are obstructing purely for political gain. Mm. That's not okay. You know, that's not that we should be holding senators' feet to the fire. They have a job to do. We have a job to do. We are currently in the middle of doing our jobs, (laughs) (laughs) in fact. Um, And the senators are not. And, you know, they they are in office now, or they are um, in D.C. until the beginning of October, if they don't leave early which they might take another vacay for another vacay Mm. to campaign. They need to know that the American people are watching and paying attention. And the truth is, no matter who your senator is, if you have two Republican senators, two Democratic senators or a mix, call your Republican senators because every single one of them has obstructed. Not one of them is doing their job. So call your Republican senators, tell them to do their jobs, call your Democratic senators, Thank them for the work that they're doing and tell them to put pressure on their Republican mm-hmm. colleagues that, that it needs to be a loud issue. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think that uh, our, our members of Congress going home early in October is really an opportunity for people back home to to get that message across. And you mentioned some folks that you've worked with on the grassroots doing some really creative things to hold their feet to the fire. So yeah. what are some things, you know, if, you know, you really want to get involved in this fight, what are some things that people are already doing? Yeah. So, you know, at CAP, we have a Why Courts Matter campaign that my wonderful colleague Anisha Singh heads up very well. Um, and it's a it's a coalition of groups in nine states, Iowa, Wisconsin, Texas, Pennsylvania, Colorado, Florida, Nevada, New Hampshire. And forgive me for I'm forgetting the ninth. Um, but so, so these states have been doing rallies all summer long um, while they're while the senators were in their home states. Rallies show up at town halls. You know, when your when your senator is at home, they're going to be engaging with the public. Find out where your senator is going to be. Ask them pointed questions about the Supreme Court. Um, tell them why it matters to you, and tell them that it's going to be an issue you vote on. You know, our uh, our partners in Nevada, New Hampshire. Um, recently, at the end of the summer, delivered beach balls to a senators to senators' offices with messages from constituents to do their jobs. So you know, <laughs> get get creative. You know, Pennsylvania has done a bunch of creative things as well. Um, one of our partners recently had a fake 
Supreme Court set up outside of their town hall with nine with eight people sitting in robes and an, and an empty and an empty chair. Um, <laughs> so there are a lot of lot of ways to, to get involved. Just search Google why courts matter with your state name and you can find partners. And real quick, Abby, anything interesting coming up that people can plug into? It is Constitution Day on Saturday, um, September 17th. Great. It is a great day for democracy. All right, folks. Constitution Day this Saturday. Let's go party. This is the Leslie Marshall Show.